There's this story about a composer. When it came to writing music, he was absolutely brilliant, but he kept really odd hours. He would stay up all night writing his music. And the reason why he did that was because there was something wired into his brain that wouldn't allow him to stop until he came to a place where it felt complete. He just couldn't take a break unless he really felt like it was done and it made sense. Well, this was okay for him, but it started to drive his wife absolutely crazy. See, she would get up early every morning, and all by herself, she would have to take care of the kids and do all the chores, and there he would be sleeping all throughout the day because he would work all night. And so she started to try and think about, how can I get him to wake up in the morning and get him back into a rhythm so he'll go to sleep at a reasonable hour and get up at a reasonable hour so they can be with his family and pitch in around the house and do all the things that I need him to do. And so she tried everything thing that she could think of. She bought alarm clocks and set them off. Didn't wake him up. She let the kids go running, yelling and screaming and making all kinds of noise, but he wouldn't get out of bed. She started doing chores that were loud, banging things with hammers and running the vacuum, but nothing that she did would work. He would just stay up all night and then sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep until late in the day. Till one day she had an idea. She was passing by his piano where he wrote music and she saw a piece that he had finished writing right next to the piano. So she picked it up, she pulled out the bench, she sat down and she started playing. She played the piece almost all the way through except when she came to the last few bars, she stopped and left it incomplete. She got up and she walked away. Within seconds, her husband popped up out of bed, ran downstairs, came to the piano, and played the last few bars to make it complete. That was his wiring. He had to get to a place where it felt finished. And so every morning, she would get up, go down to the piano, play most of the song, and leave it incomplete. And every morning, he would get up, come down, and make sure that he picked up right where she left off. Today we're coming to the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark. We've been asking the question about why did Jesus die and reading through Mark's account of why Jesus died and what that looks like. And we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, the end of the book. And many people throughout the centuries since this was written have, have noticed that Mark ends the Gospel in a place that does not feel finished. It's just a really abrupt, quick ending that leaves so much left on the table, so much questions to ask about what happened next. In fact, the other gospel writers that are in the scriptures, the other gospels, they, they fill in details about what happened after the resurrection of Jesus and, and the disciples and the interactions that we had. We'll look at that in just a few moments that fill it out. But, but Mark just comes to this point and then all of a sudden, bam, it's finished. We'll read it in a second. So much so, it's such a strange ending, that through the centuries, people added endings. Some thought that the ending of the Gospel of Mark is so abrupt that uh, maybe the original manuscript that was written was damaged or the last part was cut off. And so when people th uh, afterwards copied the book down, which is what they would do to continue to transmit uh, things that were written, they would have scribes that would copy by hand uh, all that was written. When they would come to the end, obviously, if it was damaged or if it was lost, they couldn't copy it. And so some people think that maybe that means it was damaged, it was missing, and we never got the full ending. 
Other people think that maybe the abrupt ending is on purpose. But either way, we see that by the second and third centuries, so within a couple hundred years, two, three hundred years of this gospel being written, that there were actually additional endings added to try and fill in what happened there and what about the stuff that we expect to come afterwards? What about some of the stuff we read in the other gospels? Why isn't that here? And that they were added. So we'll look at those. There's, there's actually two extra endings, so three full endings uh, to the Gospel of Mark. One of them is from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. We'll read that in a second. Then there's another one called sometimes the short ending of Mark. And uh, in some of your Bibles, it's not even there. It's not given a verse number. It's just in between verses 8 and verse 9. And then the third ending starts in verse 9 and goes to the end of what we have in most of our Bibles. So I'm going to look at that a little bit and talk about uh, why these strange endings and what we can make of it and how we can answer that question in light of that. Uh, what is, why did Jesus die and what does that mean for us and, and how do we move forward as a result? So let me read to you the first ending, the kind of cliffhanger ending that comes in Mark chapter 16 verses 1 to 8. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they, they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way there, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw the stone, which was very large and had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid the body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. The earliest manuscripts that we have of Mark, which are the most reliable ones to be historically accurate, end right there. The women have this encounter, and they're too scared to do anything about it. Now, we know that that's not the ending. We know that eventually they told somebody, otherwise nobody would be here. Word got out of Jesus' resurrection, of what they had witnessed. But here it just ends on this almost strange and fearful note where they're so scared that they can't tell anybody. Unlike the other gospels, there's no appearance of the risen Jesus. In the other gospels, we see that the, the disciples, they, they come to see Jesus in his risen body, which is different. Um, it, it, he shows up in different places. He doesn't seem to be bound by time or space. And yet he has a physical body with the scars from his resurrection uh, that he can show people that they can touch. And so he has this physical resurrected body, but it's a different kind of body that's very mysterious. We don't have any of that in Mark, at least in these first eight verses of this chapter. We don't have any of the commissioning that Jesus gave to his disciples. So in Matthew, we have what we call the Great Commission, where he tells them to go out into all the world and to, to tell people about everything and, and to teach them to follow him. None of that, which again, causes people to say there must be something more. There must have been something lost. This couldn't be it. But there is a couple of details here that are important for us to notice. And I'm really drawn specifically to verse 7. 
Verse 7, I'll read it again, says, and this is uh, the man of the tomb. It says here in this translation, um, the second part of the sentence calls him an angel. But it actually, in Mark's gospel, it does not say he's an angel, just that there was this uh, man, this young man uh, in a white robe. The other gospels, probably why it's translated here as angel, the other gospels talk about angels, these messengers that are there, uh, either one or two. But Mark's gospel doesn't actually say that. And uh, it actually says in verse 6, um, where it says, but the angel actually just says, but he said, uh, this young man who's clothed in a white robe. Now, we might assume he's an angel, but Mark doesn't say it here. He goes on to say, don't be alarmed. Looking for Jesus, he's, he's not here. And then verse 7, which is what I'm drawn to. Now, go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there just as he told you before he died. That's really interesting to me. Here's what caught my attention. Go tell the disciples and Peter, including Peter. Well, why does he say that? Peter is one of the disciples. Why does he single him out? Why does he add Peter in there specifically? Nobody else named specifically, but Peter is. Just think about Peter for a second. Think about the journey that Peter has had with Jesus. Peter was the one that when Jesus uh, told his disciples, taught them that he was going to be crucified and resurrected, Peter's the one that took him aside and rebuked Jesus. This is not the way this is going to go. You're not going to suffer this way. This is not the way we're going to change the world, Jesus, by you being crucified. That doesn't make any sense. The resurrection didn't make any sense to him. He fought it. When Jesus was arrested to be crucified, Peter denied him and denied him and denied him. Three times he denied him, ran away. We just see in Peter, he just, he just couldn't grasp Jesus telling him that the way that the kingdom of God was going to come, the way that this transformation of the world was going to happen was going to go through suffering and crucifixion and then resurrection. And so now at the resurrection, this man says, go tell the disciples and make sure Peter knows Make sure Peter knows about the resurrection. Make sure Peter knows that this wasn't the end. Make sure Peter knows that he's not too far gone. Make sure Peter knows that he can make a comeback. Make sure he knows that this is in fact the way the kingdom comes in and he's not excluded. Make sure Peter knows the crucifixion was not the end of the Jesus story. It's only the beginning. Make sure he knows he can be part of this. Tell the disciples and make sure you include Peter. And maybe some of us need to hear that same message. You're never too far gone. You can always come back. This is the way of transformation. It goes through suffering and crucifixion, but it, it comes through resurrection. When it looks the worst, there's always a way back. God's working in the suffering. God's working in the pain. God's working in the failure. Make sure Peter knows it. I love that. Go tell the disciples. That what Jesus said was going to happen has happened to make sure Peter knows this is the beginning. This is the resurrection. It's about a complete reordering and starting out with a completely new life. That Jesus died but has been resurrected. And this starts the pattern that Jesus wants us all to follow, including Peter. Peter, you're going to have to come through suffering and pain and even death in a sense. And we might talk about that in a whole number of different ways. For Jesus, he actually physically died. We can talk about it as death to self. That, that part of us that is not our true self or our ego or our death to sin, our death to injustice, our death to the way of life that we're living in now that isn't working so that we can live a resurrected life, a new kind of life. 
an ultimate eternal kind of life in God. So scholars um, and spiritual teachers in, in Christianity have really looked at this and looked at the pattern that Jesus puts before that we've looked at all through the summer, actually through the, the book of Mark of Jesus, preparing his disciples for exactly this. I'm taking you to follow me to a cross where I'll be crucified, but then resurrected. And this is the pattern. Suffering must come. Death must come. But there will be resurrection. There will be new life. And there's always a call to follow him. Come follow me in this. It's going to be very difficult. So let me talk to you about three stages of this kind of transformation that Jesus offers and invites people to come into and that we uh, will encounter but have a choice how we will move through it or if we will move through the different stages. Stage number one is order. The way that things are, the way that we live life, the way that people were living life when Jesus showed up and began his ministry, the way the disciples were living when he came, saw them, some, many of them fishermen and said, come follow me or a tax collector. And he said, come follow me. The way that they were living. We can see the way that the politics were, the way that religion were. These are things that Jesus would address. The way that things are for people who didn't have anything. People who were sick, people who needed to be fed, who, who didn't have enough. People who had uh, some sort of demonic oppression. All of these were the way that people were living. It was just the, the order of life. We all have an order of life. It's the way that we live. Jesus will move us to the second stage, which is disorder. But I'll tell you this. Those of us who are most privileged and most comfortable will be the ones who are most likely to try and maintain the current order. Because if it's working for us, we don't want it to change. But for those that the current order is not working for, these are the ones that are going to more readily accept a change. And this is actually, today, the reason I'll give you why Jesus died is because to the order of his world, Jesus brought stage number two, disorder. Jesus called for radical change. This is what we talked about right at the beginning when he called them to repent. Go beyond your current mind. Think of everything different. Well, if the current order is working for you, you don't want to go beyond your current mind. You want to maintain it. But Jesus was coming for the poor and for the sick and for the demon possessed, for the oppressed people, for people who are victims of injustice. And he was saying, I'm bringing the kingdom of God. And the reason why Jesus was killed was because he brought disorder. Jesus died because of disorder. He attacked violent politics and hypocritical, damaging religion. And the people who wanted their order to stay the same politically and religiously killed him for it. He was a revolutionary. He brought stage number two, disorder. He dismantled the way that they were doing things. He's saying this isn't working anymore. There are people who are being left out, oppressed, hurt. They're not being fed. They're not being cared for. They're not being healed. And Jesus went and he did all of those things. And he showed people, as he did them, that this is how you're supposed to follow me and do the same. But he took the order and he put them into disorder. And that's why the disciples always had a hard time. Because he taught them, as I bring this disorder, it's going to lead to the cross and a crucifixion. People who want to maintain the order will sometimes do anything that they need to do to hold on to life as it is. Jesus brought disorder to that order. Jesus died because of that disorder. They nailed him on a cross because he was trying to change the things they didn't want to change. Ushering in a new way, the kingdom of God. Putting to death our current way of thinking. Putting to death the, the current way of living. 
death to sin, oppression, dismantling the systems that continually prop them up, those things up. We can see that this process of going from order to disorder happens on a number of different levels, maybe every level. We can think of it on a personal level. And for, for all of us, at some point in your life, you're going to come to a place of disorder. You're going to come to a place where your way of living just doesn't work anymore. You're going to experience loss, failure, death of loved ones, bankruptcy, divorce, depression, loss of identity, identity crisis. You're going to come to a place where you just realize what was orderly before, the way I was living no longer works. I'm in disorder. And in that there's a pain because you realize that, that, that the life you were living in some way is going through a death. And the problem is many of us, we never really move through the disorder stage in a healthy way. Some of us, we will always want to go back to the way things were. How do we get back to our, our normal lives, our order? And we can't always go back. We can't just go back to what was, but some of us, we're always looking, how do I just restore what was, that order that was? And so we're always looking back, always looking back, never going forward, and we get stuck. Others of us, we stay in the disorder. We don't even try and go back. We just stay in it, and we get cynical. We start to say, this is the way that it is, and it's just happened again, and I'm a victim, and, and this is how life is going to be, and there's nothing that we can do about it. And we become hopeless. We think that this is just the way that the world is. Some of us, in this stage, we deconstruct our faith because we give up on it. We say, this is just, you, you can't move forward. And where is God in this? It's just we're stuck in the death. We're stuck in the disorder. Do you know, if you look into the world today, there's a lot of disorder. There's a lot of places where not just personally, but corporately together, we're in spaces of disorder where we're, our, our old order is no longer working. You know this. We're in a pandemic. There's no going back to the normal. We're trying to figure out what's new normal. And some of the things and the ways of living that we were used to are gone. And some of this pandemic has brought out some of the inequalities and really stretched people, people that have a lot. Yeah, they've been inconvenienced, but, but are able to really move on. Whereas other people uh, who, who maybe don't have as much and don't have as many opportunities have lost so much and are struggling. And we're seeing that this pandemic is affecting people very differently depending on where you started out economically. We can look at the, the ways that racial injustice in North America has had a spotlight shone on it. This past week, you may have noticed that in many major sports, uh, players have started to boycott the NBA, one of the biggest ones in their playoff games. Uh, uh, teams refuse to play because they're sick of it after this week hearing of another black man shot by police. And saying something has to change. This is disorder. This is people saying it just doesn't work anymore. And we have to do something about it. This is the kind of thing Jesus did. And there are always going to be people who say, let's just stick with, with our, our way of life. It's typically the people who are comfortable and privileged. Let's not mess with things. But we're put into this place where we come and we realize that there's pain and there's struggle. There's hurt. It illuminates injustice. This is the cross. An illumination of injustice. Why did Jesus die? Because he challenged the political and religious leaders and so they killed him because of the disorder that he brought. They wanted to maintain their order. Listen, this is a really hard stage, but we all need to enter into it if we're going to come to a new way of living. We need to be able to put to death the ways of living that are oppressive and unjust. The things that are hurting people and killing people. 
Who's going to stand up for those who need someone to stand up for them? Who's going to say something? Who's going to be willing to, to leave their comfort and say, this is a problem and the world needs to change. And we need to do it as individuals and we need to do it collectively. And we need to learn and figure it out. And it might be complicated and hard, but there's no excuse to not do it. We can't stay in the disorder, but we need to move through it. We can't get cynical. We can't expect to go backwards to order. We need to move to a third phase, which is reorder. And that is what the resurrection of Jesus is about. It moves us from the, the ordered way that's not working. It illuminates in disorder the pain and struggle and the injustice that needs to be dealt with. And the resurrection is the hope to reorder our lives and our world around the kingdom of God, the way that Jesus teaches us when he says, come follow me. Who's going to stand up and do it? Listen, Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, we need to hear this. This can't just be about religious platitudes. We can't just say that the world needs Jesus. Oh, everybody needs Jesus. That will heal our problems. I believe that that's true. But what does that mean? It means people who will actually follow the way of Jesus from order to disorder to reorder their lives and reorient their lives around the way that Jesus lived and what he was willing to die for. This is to pursue the kingdom of God in the world. Oh, people need Jesus. Yeah, people need people to follow Jesus and his way of grace his way of forgiveness, his way of reconciliation, his way of standing up against oppression and injustice and racism and sexism and keep on going with all the isms. We talked about a lot last week, uh, the political ideologies, the religious ideologies that take us away from actually loving people. We need to follow Jesus and to say, we'll be the kind of people that embody his message and follow him. And find ways, no matter how difficult it is, to reorder our lives as individuals and as communities around the kingdom of God. The way that Jesus showed us, taught us, and empowers us through his Holy Spirit. As we see so clearly in the cross, the resurrection, and the giving of the Holy Spirit to his people. Resurrection is about reorder. Jesus died bringing disorder and the resurrection is an invitation to reorder our lives around the life of God. And so we move from stage one, the way things are, order, to stage two, disorder, disrupting what needs to be disrupted. And that will mean oftentimes going through struggle, pain, and a kind of death so that we can move to reorder, reordering our lives around the kingdom of God. That reordering, I think, is what the next two endings added on to Mark's gospel are about. I think a lot of people got to the end of the gospel and said, but what happened next? We need to know what happened next. We're, we're kind of left at the end of verse eight with disorder and they're just scared. What do we do? What do we do now? So here's the next ending. Again, it's not even in all of the translations of the Bible. It was added later. It's in between verses eight and nine. It's obviously not written in the way that the rest of Mark is written. It's an addition. It's grandiose. It's big. It's a swooping summary. And this is what it says. Then they briefly reported all this to Peter and his companions. So, of course, the women did eventually tell Peter. Oh, Peter. Even you, Peter. Don't get stuck in disorder. Keep moving. 
Afterward, Jesus himself, so they meet Jesus, sent them out from east to west with this sacred and unfailing message of salvation that gives eternal life. Amen. So we have the, 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 the uh, interaction with Jesus, the commission, they go out and they do it. They reorder their lives around Jesus and spread the, the good news of eternal life. Amen. Short, sweet, big, big summary, but at least answers some of those questions that the early church must have said. Yeah, but they, they, they had to go tell someone and they had to go do something. They reoriented their lives around Jesus, around the eternal life. Then we come to verse 9, which is a, a bigger, um, more comprehensive description of uh, what happens next. We also know um, we introduced some characters here like Mary Magdalene that was just introduced uh, a few verses earlier. So we know this is picked up probably from somewhere else and slapped in here. But again, I think it's this, this effort for the early church to say, but what did the reorientation, what did the reordering of life look like? So verse 9, after Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went to the disciples who were grieving and weeping and told them what had happened. But when she told them that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they didn't believe her. Afterward, he appeared in a different form to two of his followers who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. They rushed back to tell others, but no one believed them. Still later, he appeared to the 11 disciples. As they were eating together, he rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe those who had seen him after he had been raised from the dead. So again, we have these appearances. People are struggling to still believe it, but Jesus is showing up um, and they're having these experiences with them. Verse 15 is spectacular. And then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. This literally in Greek says, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Not just people, to everything that has been created. I love that. What is the reorder? Go preach to the entire world that resurrection has happened and is being breathed into all of creation, the entire universe, people, nature, systems, everything. That Nothing is beyond hope. Don't you love that? Go preach to all creation. How do you preach to nature? How do you preach to nature? Maybe it's by believing that we can actually do something about climate change if we reorder our lives, how we live, what we do with energy and consumerism to care for our planet because our planet itself isn't even beyond resurrection and renewal. But we're going to have to think differently about how we treat our planet, how we treat the environment. To all creation means that Racial reconciliation, it's not beyond the realm of possibility, but it's going to take a drastic reordering, a resurrected eternal life to rethink how we treat people and to give all people the respect and the love of an image bearer of God that they were created to be. We have to rethink that. We have to reimagine that. We have to reorder that. Everywhere. Go proclaim this to every part of everything that's created. Continues, anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but if anyone refuses to believe, will be condemned. You have a choice to opt in or opt out. I think the only way that, that you are out is if you opt out. So let everybody opt in. 
And these miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. And these miraculous signs seem way out there for us. But again, connected to the early church saying, and this is what the experience of of real resurrection looks like. The experience that, remember when we saw Jesus do miraculous things and we talked about the fact that um, the miracles themselves are not the point. They point to something greater. So when he miraculously fed people, thousands of people. It wasn't about a cool trick that thousands of people got fed. It was about the fact that we can go out and miraculously feed people when we choose to follow Jesus, when we choose to share resources, when we choose to give generously, when we choose to not just live for ourselves, but to live for a community. So these sound strange, but I think it's in the same vein of that, that you're going to see powerful things happen. Those who believe, they'll cast out demons in my name and they'll speak in new languages. They'll be able to handle snakes with safety and if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They'll be protected. They will be able to place their hands on the sick and they will be healed. When the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken up to heaven, sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand and the disciples went everywhere and preached and the Lord worked through them, confirming what they had said by many miraculous signs. And we come to that ending and we can understand maybe a little bit more clearly uh, how that made sense to people. Uh, This is where it's supposed to be going. We're supposed to be seeing people now following Jesus, looking like Jesus and seeing our communities and our families, our neighborhoods all start to turn towards this kind of eternal life. And anybody who wants to believe, anybody who wants to trust, anybody who wants to come can reorder their lives and we'll see it happening in communities over and over and over. So I come back to the original ending, though. The ending that seems too short. The one that's too abrupt. We wonder, well, what's supposed to happen next? And what if that was all that we were supposed to have? Why would Mark write it that way? And I come back to verse 7 that we highlighted earlier when he said, Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will soon see him there just as he told you before he died. Mark makes a point. Some of the other gospels, um, he talks about seeing Jesus in Jerusalem and different places, but Mark says Galilee. Go back to Galilee and you'll find Jesus there. In Mark's gospel, that goes right back to the beginning where everything started in Jesus' ministry. We've gone from order to disorder and now it's time to reorder And Mark has it, this strange young man, maybe an angel, saying, now, after all that you've seen and all that you've experienced, after you've come from order and through disorder of the crucifixion, and now you're standing on the precipice of resurrection and reorder, go back to where it all started. And there you will find Jesus, who's already gone ahead of you. And with everything you know about what he can do, what he'll teach you, see the world differently. Go about it differently. There you will find Jesus. Go back to the beginning. But now with resurrection eyes, try to ask, what does it look like to reorder our lives around the kingdom of God? What does it look like to go back through the same way, the same order of life and come through disorder and then ask, how do we reorder our lives around this Jesus and around the kingdom that he announced? And maybe what Mark was doing was just signaling to us that this is not the end. That's why it doesn't seem like an end. This is the beginning. This is your beginning of reordering. And when you go back to the beginning, you're going to find Jesus there and it's going to change everything. Are you ready to go? to really live eternal life, to live resurrected life. 
What if Mark left it unfinished because it's meant for us to wake up and start playing the music? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a world where there is so much disorder right now, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see a way forward. Fill us with hope. Fill us with strength in moments where we want to be cynical or just give up. God, help us to see the hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternal life, the hope uh, that all creation can and will experience renewal and new life. And God, give us the courage and the wisdom to reorder our lives around Jesus and around his kingdom announcement that right now the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is available to us. And God, we pray that in the moments where we see so much pain and struggle and disorder in our personal lives, our families, and in the world, that you would always lift our gaze up, that we might see Jesus in his resurrected glory, and that would give us hope for the future. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, amen.